so one thing I hope to do in 2018 is to keep this movement of creative protest going. You know, I think Monopoly Man is one character. It's one piece of it. But I think in general, it's just this willingness to think outside of the box and take creative, innovative approaches and, you know, really bring in entertainment to protest. I think that's one thing that Trump actually has highlighted is that the American public wants to be entertained. You know, we've, we're a society that's been fed constant entertainment for, you know, at least since the advent of television. And we kind of need that to be engaged at this point. We can criticize that or dissect that as much as we want, but it's also a fact. And I think it's one reason that Trump, even though he's awful, has been able to keep our attention. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. On today's show, we talk with Amanda Werner. You may know them as a Monopoly man who trolled former Equifax CEO Richard Smith at a congressional hearing back in October. Amanda took on the character to help the public better understand the issue of forced arbitration, or what consumer advocates call rip-off clauses and get-out-of-jail-free cards for banks and big companies. The issue became national news in the wake of the massive Equifax data breach and the Wells Fargo fake account scandal, and of course when the Republican-controlled Congress overturned a pro-consumer rule on arbitration that had just been finalized by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Amanda, I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome to The Resistors. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So on this podcast, we usually find ourselves talking with the journalists and lawyers and activists that are resisting a particular wealthy CEO who is now running our country. Uh, but you've become well-known for trolling a different wealthy CEO, uh, that is the former leader of Equifax, Richard Smith, for those who haven't been on the internet in the last few months, can you tell that story? Yeah, sure. So back in October, um, I showed up at the Equifax period in the Senate Banking Committee dressed as Monopoly Man. Um, so I came wearing a top hat, a big white curly white mustache, a monocle, red bow tie, all of that. And I sat directly behind Richard Smith as he testified to these senators um, and basically trolled him for the whole two and a half hour hearing. A lot of people ask me how I got that prime seat right behind him. And, you know, the story is one that I've been in a lot of hearings. And so I kind of had an idea of where you need to sit to be on camera because I've accidentally been on camera before, as many of us have. Um, but, you know, I had to get there basically bright and early. So luckily, uh, an intern uh, that was working for us uh, last fall got there, I think, at 7 a.m. Uh, when the hearing started at 10 and snagged that prime spot. So we were able to do that. Um, and then basically, you know, I just tried to be as funny as I could throughout the whole hearing. I know that, you know, congressional hearings are something that people in theory often want to watch because they want to be informed. But when you actually sit and watch them, they're not very entertaining. It's a lot of times senators just trying to, you know, say something important they can clip on YouTube later. Um, so I tried to just be engaging. So I was just, you know, twirling the mustache putting the monocle on. Um, I think I wiped my brow with a hundred dollar bill a few times, you know, just trying to be funny and keep people's attention um, and also react to what the CEO was saying. So particularly when he addressed the issues that I was working on, which was forced arbitration, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, um, I would particularly react and make funny faces and, you know, just try to kind of be like an improv comic behind him. Basically the whole time I was paying really close attention to what he was saying, it was, it's hard to do that and also pay really close attention to what my face was doing. Um, but I tried to do that. So it was very 
you know, so it did tie in. It wasn't just random. It wasn't just distracting from what he said, but actually enhancing what he said. Um, Because I think that ended up being, you know, the most effective thing to make sure people were actually getting our message. Um, So it was interesting. It was especially surreal because every time that the camera wasn't on me, I was on Twitter, you know, basically watching it go viral in real time and trying to make sure that it stayed on message. So anytime I saw someone talking about the Monopoly man, I'd be sure to tweet at them with kind of this little spiel of like, this is why I'm here. Here's a website to find out more um, here so you can get involved, which I think really helped the ultimate end product, not just be, you know, a BuzzFeed article about, haha, look at this funny person, but ended up actually resulting in a ton of very substantive articles about the fight that I was working on. The Republican Congress and the Trump administration have taken an axe to consumer financial protections. And the hearing was on... SJ Res 47. Can you explain that? The bill that I was working on at the time was basically a Republican effort to repeal a rule from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that would have restored our rights to sue financial giants like Equifax or Wells Fargo in court when they break the law. Um, so basically, this is a is a corporate practice known as forced arbitration that's really only been the practice for about a decade or so. Um, and it's where these corporations sneak in what we call ripoff clauses deep in the fine print of their contracts. So whenever you sign up for you know a cell phone, a bank account, a credit card, it's in those terms and conditions that you sign and don't really get a chance to look at. Um, and it says that if they break the law, if they you know open a fake account in your name, if they expose your personal data, any any kind of liability, you can't join together with other consumers to take them on in court. Instead, you have to go one by one into the secret arbitration system where they get to pick who decides the case, what rules apply, um, and they stop you from, you know, pulling together resources with other consumers or applying any kind of legal precedent to the case. So essentially it's a stacked system where they benefit uh, most of the time. And in fact, we found that consumers on average are ordered to pay their bank or lender over $7,000 when they go into arbitration. So this bill from the Republicans would have did actually and ended up passing, unfortunately, and it repealed a rule from the CFPB that would have restored our rights. Um, so essentially, the CFPB gave us back our right to sue after, you know, a decade or so of not being able to, and then Republicans stripped it away pretty much immediately. You and I first met actually working at the CFPB. You were at this hearing in your capacity with two organizations, Americans for Financial Reform and Public Citizen, both of which were instrumental in creating the CFPB through their advocacy during the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform debate, really fought a David and Goliath fight to create the Bureau and to help implement consumer protections ever since then. CFPB adopted this rule. And despite your best efforts, it didn't end well for consumers in this particular fight. Where does that go from here? Yeah, well, you know, stepping back for a second, it's actually funny that you talk about, you know, the Dodd-Frank fight that created the CFPB, because that's where the authority to, to issue this particular rule I was defending came from. Like, in 2010, when they were passing that law, they actually debated whether they wanted to, um, give the Bureau the power to restrict forced arbitration. Because at that time, you know, seven years ago, they recognized that this was a growing problem. It was a fairly new problem at this point, but they already noticed the danger that it posed to our financial system to allow banks and lenders to essentially cover up, you know, consumer claims of misconduct in a secret system. Um, And so they specifically endowed the CFPB with the power to make this rule. And then seven years later, you know, after the CFPB has spent 
time and resources on making this rule. You know, it spent about five years, um, three of that just doing a study, two of that um, doing public comment and really engaging with both banks and consumers on the outlines of this, this rule they were creating. After they've done all of that work, Congress comes back and completely reverses itself. And again, you know, this this law ended up passing by a 50-50 tie vote that Mike Pence had to come and break. So this isn't something where it's bipartisan, where there is a strong majority in the in Congress trying to do this. This really was passed just by a hair um, in the, at the end of the day, undoing Dodd-Frank, which was a much more bipartisan, uh, majoritarian kind of bill. So I think that's just outrageous, first of all. Um, but unfortunately, every fight that we have to fight around the financial industry is this kind of David and Goliath battle. And occasionally we win and we get something as great as the CFPB in place. But a lot of times we unfortunately lose, even when we have this kind of viral attention from the monopoly man, even when we have a strong coalition of 375 groups that supported the rule. You know, every single consumer group was behind the rule. Um, we had uh, military veteran groups that were fighting for it. We had um, the American Legion out there actually calling on Trump to veto this law once it passed, which I don't I don't know that they've ever asked the president to veto a law before. But all of that was not enough because the Republicans in Congress and the Trump administration are just so hell bent on stripping away all consumer rights that you know it's it's really tough to fight back in this kind of climate. The language that you used during the fight, like rip off clauses and get out of jail free cards put into plain English the issues at hand. And arbitration is not an easy issue to explain. Is that in part why you took on the role of Monopoly Man? Yeah, I think that really helped. You know, anytime that we can get out of this kind of legal language, I think it really helps. A lot of times when we're talking about, you know, your rights in court, we're only going to use like legalistic, lawyerly language. And I think that really alienates people. And it really makes it seem like something that's never going to happen to you. I am a lawyer. So it's an active unlearning to not talk like that, especially in D.C., where everybody talks like that, even when you're not a lawyer. Um, but no, I mean, I think one big role that I've had in the past few years working on this campaign is to try to simplify how we talk about it and try to make it a lot more clear to just normal people who care about these issues, but, you know, need to understand them in order to care about them. Um so I wanted to just use a lot more direct, plain language. And I think one of the best metaphors we ever came up with, which was, you know, before my time, was this get out of jail free card. So the fact that if you're signing away your right to sue, you're basically giving companies like Equifax and Wells Fargo a get out of jail free card to do whatever they want and then just know that no one can actually hold them accountable for it. So that's where the imagery of the Monopoly Man came from. Um, actually, the day before the Equifax hearing, we had done a hill drop where we basically um, drop off materials at every Senate office. And this time we had done get out of jail free cards. We had me dressed up as Monopoly Man, you know, with a bunch of volunteers canvassing all of Congress and just kind of trying to make a spectacle. And that's how it kind of naturally flowed was like, well, you know, I just wore this costume today. There's the Equifax hearing tomorrow. Maybe I put the costume on again and try to get inside. Um, following the hearing, Monopoly Man was on a bunch of end-of-year lists of things that broke the internet in 2017. And I think your Reddit AMA, your Ask Me Anything on Reddit, was one of the most popular of all time. Yeah, yeah. It broke the top 10, and I think we beat Bernie Sanders, which still blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Who's also pretty adept at talking about billionaires. Let's talk about the actual behavior of the companies involved at this hearing and in 
previous work of yours. At this hearing, the former Equifax CEO was discussing the data breach that impacted well over 140 million people. I wonder if you could talk about that. And also, you had done some prior work on Wells Fargo, and I wonder if you could talk about uh, their behavior that caught the attention of Congress and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So Equifax, uh, I think it was just in September, maybe late August, um, they got caught in this massive data breach where they essentially leaked 143 million uh, Americans' personal information. So only adults have credit reports. So that already, um, 143 million people is about three quarters of the American adult population. So that's what's terrifying about this. This hit almost everyone. This hit almost all of the senators who ended up voting to give Equifax a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's really baffling. Um, but this was on such a massive scale. And the thing is, Equifax is a credit bureau. So they collect all sorts of information on all consumers, basically on you know the possibility that someone's going to ask them for a credit report on you. So we are not their customers in the same way that we might be to other financial companies. We are actually their product, essentially. So the really bad thing about that is they don't really have the proper incentives to want to protect our information because they're just not accountable to us. You know, they're not going to lose our information if we get mad at them. Like they just kind of have carte blanche to to do whatever they want with our very private information. And I think that's how they were so lax in the first place that they ended up getting hacked and, and breaching all of this data. And what's really unfortunate is that even though this only happened a couple months ago, I feel like the public has already kind of forgotten about it. Congress certainly isn't taking very many actions to do it. There are some Democrats who have advanced some good bills that would have, you know, um, given us some good protections here, but they really haven't moved much. And there hasn't been any comprehensive effort to hold Equifax accountable. And I think we've already moved on, which is disturbing because once your social security information is out there, I mean, we're talking about social security numbers and, you know, the most sensitive private information possible. That's something that's going to be a continuing threat, not just for the next few years, but potentially throughout the rest of our lives. Once that information is out there, it doesn't have to be used right away. It could be used 10, 15, 20 years from now. So I think it's really important for all Americans to really be vigilant about checking their credit reports and their data and, you know, protecting their um, their abilities there. And I think we need to keep the pressure up on Congress to do something more comprehensive because this threat is not going away. But the way that forced arbitration came in is that after Equifax's data breach was exposed, they started directing consumers to this website, I think it was called Equifax Security 2017, which is already kind of the butt of a lot of jokes for being ridiculous. Um, but also in the website, if you agreed to their identity protection program that they were offering for free as this way to make up for the data breach, you also agreed to give up your right to sue Equifax. So they snuck in a ripoff clause at this moment where people were at their most vulnerable and obviously, you know, kind of panicking, trying to find any sort of protection that they could get offered. Um, and I think they really took advantage of people. And luckily, because consumer advocates saw it immediately and raised the alarm, like the same day that we found out about the data breach, we started, you know, we sent a letter to Equifax demanding they remove it. We started talking to all the journalists, making sure it was in a lot of these reports we were able to pressure Equifax to take it out. But I think it really demonstrates how much of a standard practice it is for these companies that they'll sneak it, they'll stick it in whenever they can to try to avoid accountability. Um, and we were able to catch Equifax, but we can't catch every single company. So that's why we need strong federal rules like the one that Congress just repealed, unfortunately. And Wells Fargo. Yeah, Wells Fargo, I think, you know, it's funny, it started out with one scandal that really made a lot of headlines. And it's really just been a hemorrhaging of additional scandals in the year or so since. 
Um, but back in September of 2016, Wells Fargo got caught by the CFPB, I should mention, um, basically creating 3.5 million fake accounts in consumers' names. So essentially, if you'd signed up with them for a bank account or a credit card, you might find that you had three bank accounts and five credit cards um, that you didn't even know about. So they were creating fake accounts and people's names, um, you know, as a way of, of beefing up their numbers for investors. And also, I think, as a way to charge consumers illegal fees. Um, I spoke to one a woman whose grandmother uh, had a fake account opened in her name and the person who had opened the fake account also started depositing the grandmother's pension into this second bank account that the grandmother didn't know about. And so it turned out that because her pension was going in the wrong account, she was overdrawing on her initial bank account. She had like, you know, six overdraft fees um, because she wasn't getting her money and she didn't know she had the second account. So I think that's a part of Wells Fargo that we don't actually talk about as much, but they were actively making money on fees stemming from um, these fake accounts they created on top of just, you know, being able to brag to their investors that they were selling so many products. And this scandal took down their CEO. Yeah. So this, this broke last September and it really shook the financial industry, um, which again, from kind of the consumer advocate standpoint, to me at least was a little surprising because I've seen banks do, you know, what I consider to be similarly terrible things all the time. But this particular one really resonated with the public in a new way, I think just because you know, the, the scandal of it, it being like fake accounts that no one knew about um, hit people harder. So the CEO ended up having to resign. Now there's a new CEO that's taken over. Um, but one thing that, you know, we really try to call attention here is that Wells Fargo was creating these fake accounts and it was this huge, you know, story when it came out. But the fact is, uh, even though it came out in 2016, there were consumers that had been trying to sue Wells Fargo over this exact thing, like literally in their complaint naming, we think they have a fraudulent account scheme or they make money off consumers back in 2013. Um, but the problem is because Wells Fargo, like pretty much every major bank, uses forced arbitration, these consumers would file a complaint, they'd file a class action, and then they get pushed into the secret arbitration system where they're not able to tell their story. So they're not able to talk to journalists or, um, about what's going on. And so we didn't find out that Wells Fargo was doing this scheme until over three years later. You know, when we worked together at the CFPB, it was a different time. White House leadership was aligned with the mission of the Bureau. Let's talk about the CFPB and what's happened in the last month or so there. Uh, yeah, yeah. 20, 2017 was a rough year in a lot of ways. We lost a lot of great um, protections all around. And yeah, one thing that happened is that um, Richard Cordray, the director of the CFPB, who had been the director pretty much from the beginning, um, ended up stepping down. He's now running for governor of Ohio. Uh, his term was coming to an end relatively soon anyway, but he did leave a little bit early. Um, and, you know, under the plain language of Dodd-Frank, it makes it pretty clear that when the director steps down, the um, acting director, until you know someone's actually confirmed by the Senate, is his deputy. And so the day that he left, he named a deputy, Leandra English, made a very clear line of succession for what would happen when he left. And then, you know, it's up to Trump to then actually nominate someone and have it go through Congress. So there's definitely a path for Trump putting someone in there, but he actually has to, you know, get congressional approval, who would have known. Um, but instead, Trump responded by installing his own acting director, Mick Mulvaney, who's already, by the way, the director of OMB, 
um, the Office of Management and Budget. So he already has a job, but Trump sent him to the CFPB to also do that job, which is, I mean, I, you worked with uh, Director Cordray for a while. I'm sure it's hard for one person to do the job, let alone one person to do two jobs like that. Um, so he sent in Mick Mulvaney, and there was basically this clash of leadership of, like, who's the proper leader? And, you know, there's a big public debate about this and a lawsuit filed. And um, I think that it's still very clear that Leandra English is the proper director. Unfortunately, um, a court denied her initial attempt to get a restraining order. So, you know, that was just the initial kind of filing. And now it's going through in a more formal way to battle about who's who's the proper person. But in the meantime, the court has allowed Mick Mulvaney to basically take over and act as the acting director, which is already starting and he's already starting to basically dismantle the bureau from the inside out. He stopped them from doing rulemakings. He stopped them from doing a number of um, enforcement actions that they had ready to go. Basically he's put them, I think essentially at a standstill in a lot of ways, which, you know, given the fact that they, that Congress just took away consumers right to defend ourselves in court. Now he's taken away our primary defenders in the government. So we're essentially, you know, out here on the battlefield without a sword or a shield. At least some of Trump's appeal to his base could be attributed to his ability to paint himself as a populist. How do you think that that appeal to his base can possibly be reconciled with his attacks on the Bureau and on consumer protection generally? I mean, it can't at all. You know, I think um, even though the Republican Party has made the CFPB a prime target for several, basically since its existence, uh, it's always been very popular among voters of both parties. A lot of people don't really know what it is. They don't really know what it does. And they just hear this Republican rhetoric about, you know, a director gone rogue, which has never been the case. Um, and But when they actually interact with the CFPB or even read about anything they've done, you know, when they read about the Wells Fargo enforcement action, when they read about um, you know, holding Corinthian College accountable and any of the things the CFPB does are extremely popular. Um, they've returned over $12 billion to wronged consumers. I mean, that's pretty much the most successful government story I've ever heard. Um, so people love it. It's not actually a partisan issue. It's like you said, more of a populist issue of going against the big financial companies. So I wish it wasn't always used as such a partisan uh, tool by the Republicans and particularly by Trump. But I think at this point in the Trump administration, especially with the tax bill passing, I think, you know, the populist story like no longer works. It already was clear that he was driven by so much else, you know, so much racial hatred, so much bigotry. Um, but now that he's given away the largest, you know, tax giveaway to corporations, he's taken away our right to hold them accountable in court, all the things he's done make it very clear that he does not stand for the common man and he really is, you know, aligned with the the plutocrat class, the people that are completely pillaging us um, for their own benefit. You mentioned the recent fight over tax reform. I wonder if you happened to bring Monopoly Man to that debate or 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 what else is Monopoly Man working on now? Is the character going to continue to draw attention to the economic issues in the Trump era? Yeah. So I did end up doing some work around the tax bill. I think, you know, after um, after SJ Res 47 ended up passing, it was a natural move to start working on this because it's just such a perfect illustration of, you know, the out of touch billionaires that are pushing this bill. Um, so I did some work actually with Senator Warren. We did a couple videos together on the tax bill. 
um, which was so much fun. Uh, she's also a former, former boss of mine in addition to you. Um, and, you know, I spoke at a couple tax rallies and did some work there. Um, and, you know, I've never seen, I think, so much popular opposition to a bill like this. Like the amount of activism done, not just in D.C., but around the country was really incredible. I think another thing about the Monopoly Man character is that in some ways you push right up against the line where free speech threatens authority. Are you concerned about restrictions on speech in these times? Yeah, definitely. I think we've seen a crackdown on, you know, peaceful protest in a way that we haven't before. I mean, one, the the J20 protesters that were out there the day of the inauguration, you know, um, luckily some of the charges against a, a group of them have been dropped, but many of them are still facing, you know, literally like decades in jail for one protest. It's, it's pretty absurd. And then we've seen, you know, um, disabled protesters with ADAPT get dragged out of hearings. We've seen a crackdown on Black Lives Matter um, and having actually the FBI basically have a watch group on black identity extremists. We're seeing a huge threat to free speech. And I think it makes total sense because right now free speech is being used as a very powerful tool of resistance. So of course, they're going to want to take away the thing that we're using that's working. Um, but, you know, I worry a lot. And, you know, it's funny, one of the common questions I got right after Monopoly Man was, you know, were like, did you have to hide your costume? Like, did you ever get threatened to get kicked out? Like, and my initial response was, no, actually, the security was really nice to me. Like, I didn't have any issues. No one tried to kick me out or arrest me or anything. Um, it turns out that that was actually, I think, because I caught them off guard because I ended up dressing as Monopoly Man for a second hearing a couple weeks later. And right when I walked in, um, the security guard, you know, told me that if I touched my bag of money, I would immediately be arrested. Um, at one point, I was just kind of, you know, very casually leaning forward, as people are wont to do when they sit for long periods of time. And they told me if I leaned forward again, I'd be immediately arrested. So, you know, the fact that they're even cracking down on Monopoly Man, I think, shows me just how serious um, this threat to our free speech is. You know, it was a learning moment, I think, for a lot of people to see you bring the character to the discussion of arbitration. Many people heard about arbitration for the first time with Monopoly Man. Also to gender identity, you made a point in addition to drawing attention to the fight over consumer protection in that hearing to discuss gender identity with respect to your portrayal of Monopoly Man. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that was a really um, interesting and kind of unexpected moment for me um, so I actually identify as trans and non-binary. So I use they, them pronouns. I view myself as gender queer, like kind of not really fitting in with either side of, of the gender binary there. But I had been out to several of my friends and a lot of people who know me really well, at least had an idea of it, but I wasn't actually out at work. Um, so what happened with Monopoly Man is, you know, because I think I was dressed as a man for the hearings, I got a lot of questions from journalists afterward, you know, asking me, wait, so what are your pronouns? How should I talk about you? And generally, when I had talked to journalists, you know, just in my professional capacity, I let them use, you know, she, her pronouns, whatever, like, I just didn't really bother with it. Um, but especially as this moment was about to take off and really go viral, I thought to myself, I was like, okay, do I want all this publicity on me? And then all of it be using the wrong pronouns in the wrong language? And so kind of in that moment, I decided like, all right, well, if people are going to ask me my pronouns, I'm going to tell them the right ones. So I basically used that as a moment to, to come out on a professional level. 
um, and, you know, tried to use it a little bit as a teaching moment, too, because I think, you know, already there's not a lot of visibility in the trans community, um, especially for trans masculine folks. And I think that that was a moment for me to kind of, you know, make sure that, that people could see me, that people who are in my community could see um, someone doing this work and being open about their identity, but also as a moment to educate people who, you know, don't really know much about transgender issues to know that, you know, for one, non-binary people even exist. Um, and then also that, you know, we're just normal folks doing the work um, and we exist, I think, everywhere and in every movement. So I was really grateful to be able to call attention to that kind of stuff to help educate folks about, you know, the terminology and, and ways to respect people's identities and things like that. But it definitely was quite a trip. It wasn't something I was planning to do. It just kind of organically happened and, you know, helped uh, push me out of the professional closet there. Reddit is not known for being always the friendliest forum, but there were some very earnest kind of questions and comments. Yeah, I mean, I think I was definitely a little afraid of that, um, you know, but going on Reddit, I mean, the good thing about it is the way that you see questions and the way that you see comments is it depends on if they're basically upvoted. So people can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if it gets mostly thumbs down, Reddit kind of hides it. If it gets a lot of thumbs up, they'll show it to you. So luckily I was only seeing kind of, you know, the popular responses. Um, but I think it still, you know, says something good about Reddit that the popular responses were mostly respectful. Um, I didn't really encounter too much trouble on there, um, at least on kind of, you know, the mainstream pages of Reddit, which is good. Um, and it was nice to really be able to interact with people because I think a lot of times people are very afraid to ask these questions or, you know, afraid to offend someone by phrasing it incorrectly. And I mean, one, I think that's not a bad instinct. I think a lot of us should at this point do our own research. There's plenty of resources online to help figure out the stuff without directly asking, you know, someone who's impacted by these issues. But I think in my role as, you know, the sudden public figure, I was very open and happy to take these questions on to help people who are, have less visibility. Um, so I was glad that could be part of the discussion. And, you know, I think it definitely works into my portrayal of the Monopoly man. Like this is a character that kind of um, surpasses gender in a lot of ways, too. You know, obviously, Monopoly man is a man, but uh, my portrayal of it, I think, doesn't really uh, fit in any particular box. And, and I liked bringing in that part of my own self as well. Amanda, I'm curious, what motivates you to do what you do? Do you come from a politically active family? Actually, I come from a family of Trump voters, um, and that's been its own discussion uh, in Monopoly Man days. I would love to hear about your Thanksgiving. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think there are a lot of a lot of factors here. So, I mean, one, I think just growing up, frankly, growing up trans, I think has a lot to do with it because um, you know the trans community is one of the most persecuted communities in this country right now, and really has been for a long time. Um, so I think just growing up from that perspective really helped me see oppression and injustice in a lot of ways that, you know, pe my other identities wouldn't, like being white, middle class, um, all of those things would kind of shield me from this. But because I was trans within that environment, I was able to see how, how oppression works and how much it harms people. So I think that made me better able to, you know, down the road, understand um, racism and ableism and all these other forms of bigotry that it was easier to to understand the framework, even though it did obviously still take some work. Um, so I've pretty much been interested in politics and social justice from a very young age. Um, I think like 14 or so, I really got into 
all these issues and firmly decided to become an activist. Um, but my specific work um, comes out of really trying to figure out the common denominator among all these various oppressions. And, you know, I think there's a lot to say there, but one conclusion that I've come to is that a primary actor in all of these various forms of oppression is kind of the corporate state, you know, and I actually, in law school, I wrote about how I think that corporate America is essentially the modern incarnation of, you know, the white ruling class. Like we had these wealthy white landowners um, back in times of slavery and things, and we've taken away some of their, you know, really explicit privilege in the law. Like, you know, the law no longer has separate distinctions for white people and black people outwardly, even though they're applied that way a lot of times. Um, but what we do have is we have very separate standards of law that apply to people versus apply to corporations. And so my basic theory is that corporations are essentially, you know, the new white ruling class of our times. And I think that they're used um, to get away with a lot of stuff that we talk about as if it's in the past. You know, we talk about these two tiered systems of personhood as if they're something we got rid of after the Civil War. But the fact is, we didn't get rid of them. We just gave them to different types of people. And the people that they benefit right now are people who have corporations. Um, so I've been working on kind of corporate accountability, not just because I care about economic justice or, you know, financial issues in particular, but because I think it actually hits all axes of oppression that we're still fighting. Um, I think it's a huge player in white supremacy. Um, obviously, I think, you know, capitalism has a lot of effects on all of these other types of oppression as well. And so my approach has been to kind of go after corporate America as a way to just bring in a, a much more free and equal society in general. Amanda, what's next for you? What else do you have in the works for 2018? And how can people concerned about financial fairness and corporate accountability get involved in the fight? Yeah. So I think for me, 2017 was really kind of a revelation. Um, I mean, the funny thing about Monopoly Man is the people who've known me for a while or known me well we're not at all surprised to see that I would do something like this. I mean, very much, I've always been kind of the irreverent troublemaker, but you know, I think the thing is like, since I've come to DC and, you know, since I went to law school and all of this, I kind of went down a more traditional path. And, you know, I think it came to DC kind of trying to be another policy lawyer, which is not a bad thing to be at all, but isn't particularly natural to who I am. Um, and I think DC in particular is, a, you know, a, a culture that's very, uh, it's marked by, you know, traditional symbols of success and traditional kind of approaches to things. And it's respect and dignity are very important. Um, and that's just never like dignity has never been very important to me. I'm very happy to make an asset of myself. if It's going to do something good. Um, so I think what really was important for me about Monopoly Man is just like I've been trying to kind of fit into this more traditional mold for a while now, and it's been working fine. I'm, I've had a decent career as a policy lawyer, but what really made me stand out and what made me, you know, break through to, to true success was actually leaning into my more irreverent side that I had been trying to kind of tamp down in DC. So I think that was really helpful to just realize, I think we all bring very unique perspectives and unique gifts. And the more that we lean into those, no matter what they are, um, I think that's going to, you know, work a lot better for us. So one thing I hope to do in 2018 is to keep this movement of creative protest um, going. You know, I think Monopoly Man is one character. It's one piece of it. 
but I think in general, it's just this willingness to um, think outside of the box and take creative, innovative approaches and, you know, really bring in entertainment to protest. I think that's one thing that Trump actually has highlighted is that the American public wants to be entertained. You know, we've, we're a society that's been fed constant entertainment for, you know, at least since the advent of television. And we kind of need that to be engaged at this point. We can criticize that or dissect that as much as we want, but it's also a fact. And I think it's one reason that Trump, even though he's awful, has been able to keep our attention. You know, even now he tweaks out one thing and it entertains people for a week or two. Um, so I think that's something the left needs to seize more, especially because, frankly, we have all the entertainers. We have all the comedians and the musicians and filmmakers. Um, so we need to seize on that creative energy and bring it into our politics. And I think we can offer something that Trump can't. You know, he's got this kind of nihilistic entertainment, right? He's got something that will make you laugh or you can make fun of him, but he doesn't really have any deeper meaning. I think even his most ardent supporters aren't actually inspired by him. They're kind of just more, you know, they're here to watch the world burn, right? But I think the left has the the power to be entertaining and inspiring, which I think is, you know, the deepest chord you can really strike with people. So I think we need to lean into that. And instead of just talking policy and numbers and practical realities, I think we need to hit people on the more emotional level, um, but actually hit them with a positive message that we can deliver on. So I hope that that's kind of where we're going in 2018. And one way I'm doing that is I'm working with um, a group called We Do Count. Um, it's basically a, an anti-Wells Fargo campaign calling attention to their use of forced arbitration and other bad practices to try to make people switch uh, to a credit union or community bank that doesn't do these things. Um, so we're trying to make it very intersectional as well, you know, address Wells Fargo's funding of, of DAPL, of their poor treatment of their workers, all sorts of things they've been doing the past couple of years and really put the heat on them to make their policies better and also make consumers hold them accountable in the way that we can, which right now is just whether we use their services. Um, and I'm also working with Public Justice, uh, which is basically a, a do-gooder law firm. They, they work on consumer issues, um, environmental issues, civil rights, a lot of different things. And I'm going to be helping them run campaigns to support that. So I hope that this year will bring creative protests, creative resistance, um, and you know, keep things going from what we started last year. Well, Amanda, thank you for bringing your creativity to help more of us understand complicated issues like arbitration. And I, for one, look forward to seeing what other characters you might introduce in 2018. All the best. Yeah, thanks so much. I look forward to resisting with all of you. That does it for this episode of The Resisters. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Amanda, Americans for Financial Reform and Public Citizen. You can connect with Amanda on Twitter at WAmandaJD. Also check out OurFinancialSecurity.org and Citizen.org. You can listen to more episodes of The Resisters on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at TheResisters.co.